This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Warden School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I used to be the senior editor of entrepreneurship at Forbes. I'm now chief content officer of a growing community of businesses called the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. My assignment for the Oxford Center is to build a content platform for business owners. I'll let you know how it's going as we uh, get a little further along. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If you've been struggling with something running your business, especially if it has something to do with rebranding or digital marketing or creating content, call us. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 1- 844-942-7866. And let me emphasize, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening to this show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. And with me today to discuss your challenges and his challenges is a very special guest, Neil Vogel. Neil's an entrepreneur. He was founder and CEO of Recognition Media, a creator and producer of award shows and media properties. You may have heard of the Webby Awards, the Telly Awards, Internet Week. They were his doing. He's also a Warden grad and a former investment banker, and he parlayed all those experiences into being CEO of About.com, which... If you remember dial-up service, you may remember it was once an internet giant. Uh, Many presumed it was headed the way of Pets.com when the New York Times sold it to Barry Diller's IAC a few years ago. I was one of those who presumed that. Uh, But then Neil took over, and it's had a remarkable transformation, and he's here to tell us about it. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Neil. Hi, it's good to be uh, it's good to be back. I'm just happy that you let me in your safe space. <laughs> happy to have you. Very happy to have you. Thanks. Did I did I get that basically right, or did I oversimplify? Yeah, no, 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 no. You got it right. Like simple is always better. So that's, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, well, tell us about it. What uh, d- uh, start sure. start with uh, your arrival at uh, about dot com. Uh, did you go there with a plan? Did you know what uh, you were getting into, or did you have I, well, to? I did. I, I went there with a plan that ended up being totally wrong. Which, which we can, which we <laughs> well, tell us about, about that. Uh, so I I had been um, pretty much been an entrepreneur. Uh, out of I went to Wharton, as you noted, and I was an investment banker for a little bit, which I, I enjoyed a lot. And then I I was sort of on the founding team of a couple of things, and we did pretty well. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next with my life. Um, essentially, when we when we basically sold uh, Recognition Media, which was the Webby Awards business, and I got approached by. Um, the guys at IC, which is which is sort of Barry Diller's uh, crew, who's obviously had a string of remarkable successes, everything from you know Expedia to Live Nation to now Match, and you know six through seventy billion dollars worth of public companies later, um, and they had just bought About.com from uh, the New York Times, and most of you guys remember About.com from I'm sure if you use the internet in the '90s or the 2000s, <laughs> and you Google and you Google something, and we showed up, and we might have been a good answer or a bad answer, but we definitely were a very ugly, unpleasant experience, and. Um, the New York Times owned it for a while. It wasn't really core to their mission, so it sort of languished there a bit. And uh, Barry, Barry Diller and IAC saw an opportunity. They said, this is a really big 
big pool of content that's really helpful to people, but uh, the way that it's being delivered to people is wrong. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to use. It's ugly. doesn't really make as much money as it should. So they bought it for $300 bucks, which um, at the time is a fair amount of money, still is a fair amount of money. And, um, and through a crazy sequence of events, which included um, me totally not wanting to do this at all, I ended up coming and running this. Um, uh, because I basically uh, looked at it like an, an incredible entrepreneurial opportunity. It was essentially uh, some of the smartest guys in media saying, we don't really know what to do with this thing. We kind of like the assets and the content. Do you want to come in and try and figure it out? You seem to be someone who has worked in media for a while. And frankly, I, I definitely was not the first person they called. Um, I think <laughs> what they, it's true. I mean, I think they realized they needed more more of a like a scrappy entrepreneur type than a Harvard Business School polish type, which is, I, I would agree, it's what this place definitely needed. And it's definitely more what I am and probably still am. And to, to make a long story short, we got here and, and I thought we would be able to do to about.com what other media companies can do, which is you clean it up, make it nicer, make it more friendly to advertisers, make it look better, make the site work better technically, and the results would improve. And we, that was the plan. And I was also, the second part of the plan was, the company was in such bad shape, I wasn't going to be the guy that messed it up. So it was fun. We can get to come in and do this stuff. Like, <laughs> it was a, look, this is a lot of upside. And, and not a lot uh, to lose. And not, there was really, I mean, all you have in life is time, so I could have lost some time. But I'm like, wait a minute, I get to work with these incredible people that have built these incredible businesses. Um, I hadn't really had a boss in a long time. If, I'm like, if I'm going to have a boss, it might as well be these guys. And they're more like partners than anything else anyway. The ISC is very much like an investment company. They kind of let you do your thing, which is very appealing. You're not even in the uh, IAC building, are you? No, we're not. We actually have too many people. We don't. We don't fit in the IAC building. For anyone listening, IAC has a, a big building on the west side of Manhattan. That's actually quite beautiful. But we are instead in the middle of Times Square, which is significantly less beautiful. But um, <laughs> we can fit our three hundred. But off by yourself. But off by yourself. So, which actually helps a lot in, in building culture. But to to get to the story and to to quickly put some like meat around uh, what you what you laid out in the beginning. Um, we got here and we ran our plan and tried to do our plan and it totally uh, did not work. And we we were successful at some things. We were able to make the site look better. We were able to clean up the content a little bit. We were able to figure out how to make a little bit more money. But our key measure, which is how much traffic we have and how many people are coming to our site, um, kept going down. And not only was it going down, but it was accelerating down. And we missed, this is it's my new favorite thing. We just figured this out. We missed eight straight quarters. And we're part of a public company. So um, <laughs> the, how we all still work here is a great mystery to me. <laughs> but, I, but I think what it was is we missed eight straight quarters, but we always had a plan. And, and we were always focused on data and what was going on. And we were always very, very honest with all of our stakeholders as to what was happening. Like, this is going to be hard. But there's a core kernel that our content is really good and helps people. If we can figure out how to fix this thing, we're going to have something. And what we learned after, uh, with a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of trial and error and a lot of pain was that it wasn't that our website was bad or, or that our, it was too slow or we had too many ads. It was our model was wrong. And um, the model was we were just a big general interest website, and that wasn't appealing. Like, um, if you enjoy cooking and there's a beautiful recipe on how to make Thai chicken on about.com or on Epicurious or our recipes, you're always going to pick the people that aren't us because we weren't specialized. If you um, 
if your mother is diagnosed with diabetes, you want your information from like WebMD or Everyday Health, not from About.com, no matter how good our content was. So it was a, it was a sign to us that we deciphered that said, you know what? We need to change what we're doing fundamentally. We need to like blow this thing up and start over again. That, that sounds to me to like it, content. It, it, Neil, it kind of mirrors what you can see going on with other content sites. I mean, just from my own experience, my last two employers uh, at the New York Times, I think the Times was a little slow to realize that fewer people were coming to the to the main uh, homepage and then just looking for for stories. Uh, whereas at Forbes, they were kind of ahead of the game and realized that fewer and fewer people are just going to go to Forbes.com and the way to reach people is through social media and, you know, on, you know, a whole bunch of different verticals that could pull in people, but not people who were just going to go to Forbes.com and say, hey, what's here for me today? That's exactly right. And what we, what, we, what we learned was we thought our greatest advantage was this name about.com that had like some incredible, like 85% aided recall among internet users, something insane. But what it turned out was that wasn't our asset. That was our biggest albatross. It was our liability. So what we did, and we had one sort of the turning point meeting of, of our time here was we met with the senior crew at, at, um, IAC, which is our parent company, and we had a conversation that, that I'll explain. It's a little bit publishing-centric, but I'll explain. I said, if, if you give us a year, we can turn about.com into Condé Nast, or we can turn about.com into Hearst or into Meredith. And for those of you who don't know, Hearst and Condé Nast and Meredith own all of the big mig, like vertical magazines and internet properties that you can think of. They own Vogue, and they own all recipes. And they own better homes and gardens and all these things. And we said, if you give us some time, I think we can break this thing up and we can put our content uh, together in a way. We're going to launch all new brands. We're going to throw about.com into the garbage. And when we're done, we're going to be in a great place. And again, this is a plan from a bunch of guys that had just done nothing but not succeed for two <laughs> years. And guys and women. And uh, we, we can share the blame across gender. And, uh, and, uh, and, and their response was really interesting. It was, go do it. It actually seems like the logical thing to do. Um, Good for them. Uh, ba- based on where we are. And again, I think they're, they're, they're internet investors, so they've been playing the long game. And um, we went and did it. And I don't. I, we can get into the details of that. Well, I we, do want to get into the details. Let, let me stop you for a second. Uh, I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Neil Vogel. He's CEO of the media company formerly known as About.com. If you have a question about rebranding or about digital marketing, he's a great guy to talk to. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Neil, can we back up for a second? You said that you you came to the realization that About.com was uh, an albatross, not an asset. How did you realize that? Well, uh, we realized that sort of by, by talking to people. And we... In our business, and in anyone who tries to do something online, we had we had like three real audiences. We had we had an audience of advertisers who give us money, and we learned from advertisers that because about.com covered so many topics, it wasn't meaningful on any one topic. So if you were a health brand or an automotive brand or a CPG food brand, you didn't want to advertise us because we weren't specialized. So that was a data point because the rest of the internet was specialized, and then. You know, you get a lot, when you're scaled like us, you get a lot of traffic from Facebook and from Google and from Pinterest and from 
uh, you know, you name it, Flipboard. And what happened was the algorithms had no idea what to make of About.com, and they couldn't understand how we could be good at fried chicken content and leukemia content. So <laughs> they stopped, which was right. They weren't wrong. So they stopped sending us traffic. And then the third thing that happened is the consumer Internet experience, like what, how people interact with the Internet, really changed over time. And there was a time that the big recognizable name was – the name that did really well, right? Like AOL or about.com or anything like that. And then now it's, if you really want specific information around, let's take health, for instance, you go to WebMD, you'll go to Healthline, you'll go to Everyday Health. If you want information around food, it'll be like, oh, Epicurious. Uh, if you want tech, you might go to The Verge or Engadget. And we just were like about.com. So it basically told everybody that we were mediocre at everything. And that wasn't a good place to be. Interesting. Uh, did you do market research, or was this m more just based on your personal conversations and those of your team? I think on the – it was both. Some of it was – we didn't actually go out and do market research, but we still have – we still, even at our even at our low point, had a ton of traffic. So we could learn an awful lot about what was happening. And you can tell the algorithms are sending you less people. Your salespeople are going out on sales meetings where we, we famously had – um, uh, this was really the turning point meeting, one of the turning point meetings. We, we went in to talk to a very large um, computer manufacturer that had bought with us for a long time. And they basically said, look, your stuff performs pretty well for us in terms of Internet metrics, but we're never buying from you ever again because, we, we, because your brand is just so nothing. And if you fix that, call us. We'd love to work with you again, but we don't want our brand next to your brand because we're not a nothing brand. We're a cutting-edge tech brand, and I want to be next to the cutting-edge tech brands, and you're not that. So we're like, uh, Did they put it that nicely? No. they. Uh, I, I will always respect – I was actually in this meeting. I will always respect these guys because they were just super honest. They were like, listen. They did you a favor. Here, here's where you suck. They did us a favor. And but we should always be honest with people. Um, so there was there was a little bit of that, and then there was just like anecdotally, if you asked whatever you're into, and everyone thinks like I, I like technology, like I would never use our own site for technology stuff. So that, that's a hell right there. Like that wouldn't be my first choice. I, and I knew we had really good content, but it was just like uh, it wasn't presented right. So I'd find myself like not even intentionally like on you know, CNET instead of our stuff. And that's probably not a good sign. So when you went to uh, your overlords at IAC and said, give us a year and we can turn this thing around, did you, at that point, did you have a plan? Uh, we did. We had a plan. And, and what we were going to do is we were going to take all of our content that clustered around the areas we thought we were really good at, which was health, personal finance, tech, uh, travel, um, and home and food which also happened to be very valuable areas to have content on the internet. And we said we were going to throw away everything else that we weren't good at. We weren't good at news or sports or fashion or that stuff. We, we wanted to be evergreen, sort of like what in publishing term of art they call service content, like content that helps you do things, how-to and helper content. Um, and we said we're going to launch five brand-new brands built from scratch on sites that we build entirely from scratch. Uh, when we're done, we're going to have probably 300,000 pieces of content. When we started, we had about a million two or a million three pieces of content. So we're going to throw two-thirds, three-quarters of our assets into the garbage. But what we make on the other side, we're going to care about every single piece of content, make it great, make it beautiful, be really respectful in our advertising, and we're going to try and build real brands that matter. Not just another brand in this space, but have a real point of view in each of our brands. And um, we... 
took an organization that had done one thing for a long time and we flipped it around and we started launching these verticals and it took us, we, we thought it would take a year, it took 18 months, but it's still a remarkably fast time considering each of these sites is now a top 10 site in its space on the whole internet, which is like a pretty remarkable thing. And, you know, um, one or two rebrands in 18 months uh, can be a haul. Uh, to do that many in that amount of time is actually really impressive. It was it, w- it was just one of these things. Like, if, had we thought about it, it would have been so incredibly daunting. But we, we had really, really talented people here. We brought in an incredible creative director who had been a very senior person at J. Crew to help us really think about brand and branding. And we made these brands... We had some real rules of how we were going to make sites. We, were going to, we basically gave everyone the task. We don't have time. So if you're looking at what you're working on that day and you don't like it, stop working on it. Like if it, The thing we would say to everybody is if you're interviewing for your job today and all you could show them is what you're working on today, would you get the job? That's the standard that we need to operate because we have no time for wasted motion. Like do it right or don't do it. And, you know, you get into – as, a, as an entrepreneur, you get into a lot of questions of, of, you know, it's that good, fast, cheap matrix, right? You can't sure. you never have all three. So if it was going to be good and it was going to be fast, it was not going to be cheap. So the way that we had to limit costs is we had to be very careful about scope, and we had to be very careful about time and put a time box around everything. And uh, we ended up launching these things. And, and rather than go through each one, I'll just skip to the results. It's probably two and a half years since we launched our first one. It's about a year since our final got launched. Um, Comscore is like the sort of like the Nielsen ratings of the internet. When, when we started this process, we had about 40 million people still coming to about.com a month, which seems substantial, but it was way down from its peak. Uh, right now, we are probably in the high 70 millions a month. So we've nearly doubled our traffic since we started launching these verticals, again, with, with one-third the amount of content. And, you know, our revenue, IAC just started telling people we're, we're going to be north of $100 million this year. We're going to be very profitable. We, the first six months of the year, it was in their earnings report. They're public, so I can't really, I can only talk about a few limited financial things, but we were up 50% in revenue year over year, the first half of the year. Um, so this thing really worked, and it really worked because we just, this is the thing I, we've talked about this before. If you're running a business and you do five things, you just hope to do three things right and two things wrong, and you'll be in great shape. We happen to do the two wrong things first and then the three right things second. So you can really divide our <laughs> tenure here like almost in half. And so it made – I had a very funny conversation with, with um, essentially the guy who I work for. Um, and – uh, for, with, his name's Joey Levin. He's a fantastic CEO of ISC. He's great. And he, we, we were, there was a little bit of a victory lap, you know, in one of these meetings we had about how, how well we've been doing recently. And he was like, don't forget, like, you are the guys that, like, don't forget, you took this to the brink of death. You didn't just save it. I'm like, yes, correct. We did. <laughs> we did. But that was like, the brink of death part was someone else's idea. This was our idea, which was the, the, 
rewarding thing. Um, but it, it, again, it all worked because we figured out what we were good at. Well, like, let's we just, talk about a couple of those things. Uh, again, I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Neil Vogel, CEO of Dot Dash, uh, the media company formerly known as About.com. Uh, Neil, in doing this, you, you had to come up with names for a, a new name for About.com, which I just gave away, and new names for these verticals that you decided to focus on. How important did you think the actual names were during this process? Uh, we So we thought they were incredibly important. And then... I have a whole. We have very strong feelings on namings and how you name things. And I find this fascinating. Tell us all about. We talked it. about this before. There's this conception in the world that to make a name, a bunch of people sit in a room and write names on a board, and then oh, here's a name I like. I like, and let's make a logo. Let's open up PowerPoint or like into the strange draw something. It didn't really work that way, and. I think part of what we were doing. Did you try doing it that way and it didn't work, or did you? Uh, we, I, I, that's how I instinctively would have done it originally. But we have this. His, his name is Vince. He's this incredible design person who's sort of like the head design visionary person here, who taught us a different way to do it. And we would do these. We did these very deep. Doesn't take a lot of time, but very deep like explorations of what we wanted our brand to be. And like the simplest example I use is like if your brand were a car what kind of car would it be? If it were an animal, like, what kind of animal would it be? Like, what emotions do you want it to evoke? Sounds like a Barbara Walters special. Totally, but it totally works. Like, what emotions does it, do you want it to evoke excitement? Do you want it to evoke calm? That'll help with color choices. Like, and so what we ended up with with a lot of our brands, because our brands generally help people, the thing that we circled on is we wanted our brands to represent the end state people would feel after using them, which we thought... When, when Vince came up with, we sort of like, he distilled that down. We're like, holy crap, that's it. And our first brand was a health brand, and we named it very well because we wanted it to be not like WebMD that scares you into thinking you're going to die when you have a stomachache, but something <laughs> that will like make you calm and be very well. And we used calm colors, and we, don't, we used less photographs and more illustrations. And so that was a really big thing to get right, and we think we nailed our first name. Our, our second property was called it's a personal finance site so you know helps you get a car loan and deal with your 401k and um, uh, you know understand your retirement plan we named it the balance because we wanted people to feel in balance when they were using it and we, we designed it and it's a very millennial and female focused uh, finance site so we thought that was like really really important and, and that's been really successful and if you go down the line to our other name well let me st- let me stop you with that one um, if you had told me we're thinking about naming this personal finance site the balance I probably would have given you terrible advice but my first reaction would have been well you know I'm not sure that says personal finance I'm not sure you you say that name to somebody they're gonna know what this site does uh, was that a concern um, it was, and I actually had that reaction for a while. I was not, it was not my first choice for this, but I let the, we, I think we all let the smarter design people pick it. I would say you hit on the one problem that brand has. Um, the good news for that brand is, is the majority of its traffic comes from Google search, people searching. So it shows up on, um, the search page in a lot, and it has a little tagline that says make money personal, which is like, so people sort of understand what it is. But yeah, we, we didn't want to be, 
a couple of our brands are sort of literal, but we didn't really want to be literal. We thought we wouldn't be able to achieve sort of the goal of like the feeling we want. And we also look every other, in finance in particular, every other finance brand is stodgy and boring and stiff, and they all talk about the same thing, and they all are in the same colors, and they all look the same, and they're all like weird and intimidating. We we wanted to be really different, and we achieved being really different. I, I think you're probably right. Maybe it was a little bit too different, but two years later, I, I think we're in pretty good shape. Which raises the question, you know, just how important is the actual name and you've been through a whole bunch of these now i'm really curious about your impression because you know i often wonder about it i mean you know would uber have had less success than it has had if it had been called something else did it have to be called uber um what did you what conclusions did you draw from I, this process i don't i think when you're doing these things there's a there's two factors at play for us one there is the looking back on it now this tells us a great story but it's like if you've ever gone surfing or been in the ocean there's like two perspectives you have on a wave right there's like when you paddle out and the wave's coming at you and you're like lying down on the board you're like holy shit that thing is going to drown me and then like when you're like kind of and I'm, i don't really surf so it's a, I'm, I'm sort of, but when you're coming in you have a very different perspective so we're on like the coming in part now on on the going out when we were paddling out it was really really daunting so we had this thing that we actually held this in incredible importance and then we only had a limited amount of time to ruminate on these things. So we just had to make decisions, which was actually, at the time, it felt like a disadvantage, but it turned out to be a huge advantage. And I, I, we actually think they're really, really important. And they're not important that, like, you can make a customer um, know, you know, if, if you do enough things, right, you can make anybody know any brand. And, like, what does Uber mean? But all of a sudden it's synonymous with this, this thing now. We just, we wanted something that, everyone here felt good about and like when this problem we had a lot of is if you worked at about.com and went to a cocktail party or a dinner party or had drinks with your friends you weren't that excited to say you worked at about.com but if people worked it very well or they worked at trip savvy or they uh work at lifewire we want people to be excited about that so that's sort of like what we were shooting for with some of the branding the name you came up with for uh, the overall um, umbrella organization instead of about.com is dot dash. Tell us about that. So the um, dot dash for us was it's a little bit of um, like a, a, a regular consumer would not know what dot dash is, nor, nor would they need to. It's a lot like Condé Nast or Hearst. Like those aren't really consumer brands, but we needed a holding company brand so we could you know go and talk to advertisers and just kind of like need it for all kinds of reasons. So. This was sort of like a fun one for us because it didn't. It was it was a little bit more for the trade. So, if you remember, about.com had a big red dot in its uh, in its original logo. So we, we I do that remember that dot, now that you mention right, it. Right, about.com was a big red. You can Google it. it, was, it was, everything was about the red dot and. Part of it was our whole office has these red dots all over them, so we're like, I, we can't redo our office too; it's too much. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, by the way, kind of true. Like, there's these red dots everywhere, and we don't dislike them, so that's cool. And then we liked Dash because Dash felt like it was like punctuation for like what comes next, or Dash meant running or moving forward. So it felt like we we're taking the red dot and moving it forward. And then the best part of that name is, which is why we picked it is there's a little Easter egg built in there that in Morse code, dot dash is the letter A, which is about dot com. So it, we liked it because we it, it felt like it was really thoughtful. Um, it also solved the problem of <laughs> keeping a red dot in our lives. 
Um, and we actually liked it. And uh, it's actually the one brand that people – we are part of a larger public company and, and – uh, you know, our, our CEO and the, our investor relations people have to talk about us, so we needed a good name. The one thing we knew is we could not be about.com anymore. We, we thought we might try and keep about.com, but it just sent the, a message to people that was not we, – we tried so hard to change the perception, and we just couldn't. Well, if you're looking for a little marketing research, I can tell you that in the uh, SiriusXM studio here uh, at Wharton, one out of three people got the Morse code reference, and really? that was our uh, producer, Dion. Oh, there you go. That's very old school. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, mean I'm, I am probably north of millennial age, but I, I would not have known that. I certainly did not. Um, so is that an example of... Well, I guess in this case, it's not a consumer brand, so it didn't matter that much that way. And, you know, what we didn't, we wanted to have something also that, um, you know, everyone else in our space was like something media or something this, and we really wanted to be different. So we were just like dot dash, period. We're not like dot dash media co or, you know, do whatever. We just thought it would be, and it, it felt like very declarative, like here we are, this is happening. Uh, how did you uh, go about making the decision of what you wanted to handle internally and, uh, you know, when it came to rebranding and rethinking the names and what you were doing? How much did you go outside for expert advice? So for us, I think we, we actually thought a fair amount about this. And I think it, had we been doing one branding project, like we were going to launch a new thing and needed a brand, we probably would have gone um, for outside help and, and done it that way, used an agency or something of that sort. But I think for us, the way we make the decision is, is this a core competency we need to have? And, and we knew we needed to do five or six of these things. So we needed to have this competency in-house. And we also knew that um, branding isn't a thing, and this is another thing that we sort of figured out and we learned at about.com, branding doesn't really have an end. It, it just has like a beginning. So you get this new brand, but it's like a living, breathing thing. And if you really want it to be meaningful, and we are consumer internet properties used by like, you know, 30% of Americans touch one of our properties every month. So we knew that once we had these brands, we had to do a lot of things from like design work to thinking what they meant to what our websites look like. So branding is something we decided to bring like in-house. And, and with like I said, we, we, we built like a branding team. We have probably 15 or 16 graphic designers here now. We, we started with two or three. Um, but I think we've learned that it's a core competency, so we wanted to build it. Other things that are not necessarily uh, core to us, uh, we have outsourced. And we do that for us in our type of business. That's a lot more on the, on the, on the tech side. Like we build some really amazing proprietary things like our – CMS, which is our content management system, which is how we manage the content on all these sites at scale, we have built for ourselves. But a lot of our other technology products and things we use, we outsource and we license from other people. And a lot of the reason for that is we learned that we use technology, but we can't be a publisher and a technology company. Like you can't, if, if someone, and it doesn't necessarily apply to us, but think of it this way. Unless you're a really, really big retailer, you might as well just use someone like Shopify to be your platform because they're really good at it, and that's all they do. And they set up ways that people can set up stores and manage them, and they're really, really sophisticated, and they're awesome, and we could never do that. So we actually have a little project where we're selling something, and we're just going to use Shopify. 
because it's easier and they're really good. So we, we really look at, is this an ongoing core competency we need? And if it is, we bring it in-house. Is this like a one-off or something that we're just not comfortable that we, we want to build that function? Then we, then we, we outsource it. Um, you know, we do a lot of, we have, we have a, you know, a very large freelance workforce that helps us with our content. Um, you know, the, some do a little bit of work, some do, you know, a little bit more work. Um, and that for us is, you know, we, we, we can't have, uh, you know, 500, 600, 700, 1,000 people on our payroll to help us write things, particularly if we only need to do a couple of things once in a while. So we do some, a fair amount of outsourcing around that. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're just, you have to be really honest is like, do you need to own this or not? We, we try to tie up as little time and capital and things we don't need as possible. How about when it comes to uh, digital marketing as a consumer site? Uh, you need to spread the word. You you know you introduce these uh, verticals uh, that were rebranded. You had to let people know about it. Is that something you handled internally or? Yeah, yeah that for us that is how we distribute, which is sort of like the term of art we use, like distribution, um, and sort of you know some people will call it like growth hacking or whatever. How we get people to use our sites, and we we don't really do any of that. Is we do all that internally. Because that's that for us is a is a core competency and advantage. Like we make our our job here is to make the best content under the best brands and get it to people when they need it. And we need to be really good at those three things. And so that's something we definitely do internally. Now, if we were like a chain of dry cleaners, I would probably not do it internally. So, what's been most effective for you in terms of uh, digital marketing? You know, it's really interesting. The the this is going to sound weird. But the most effective digital marketing for us is making the very, very best stuff that we can on all the topics that we cover in our different brands. And I'll explain that a little bit further. We you, it sounds compare, like you're saying if you build it, they will come. In a little bit on the Internet, um, if you build it and you distribute it right, they will come. And, and for us, we get a fair amount of our traffic from other people, from Google, from Pinterest, from Apple News, from Flipboard, you know, a lot from our own email lists. And, and the way you get to rank in Google or the way you get featured in Pinterest or the way you show up in Facebook's algorithm is if you really make the best thing on someone's topic. Like if, for Google, if you make the best thing for someone's query and, and you have like the best, you know, Thai barbecue chicken recipe on the internet, that, in effect, is very much of your marketing. It's, and, and then once you get them here, it's what you do to make them happy. So the number one thing that we're focused on is we always believe there's no tricks. You build something incredible, and then you figure out how to get it out in the world, right? And then you try and, like, optimize it for search. You, you, you must know there are an awful lot of people out there trying to sell tricks. You know, the, the guy who will sell you an SEO strategy that will put you at the top of uh, Google's rankings. Um, were you tempted 90, to try anything like that? 99.9% of those guys are garbage. Like <laughs> they all there there is no any years ago one could try and call it trick an algorithm. Do something to make show up better in Facebook or it happened most with Google. Do something to win the page on Google like artificially get a million links or bury a million words in your like tags or whatever. But 
those days are long gone. I, I happen to agree with you, and I've been making that kind of argument at various places for, for a long time. But if we have anybody listening who disagrees, and I know there are people out there who do disagree, give us a call. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. If you've got an SEO trick that you'd like to share, give us a call, and we'll uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, yeah, I would. I just I think look, we're very. Um we pay a lot of attention. You know, we have, again, I don't know how, we have 10 million user sessions a day here that come from all kinds of places. So we have an awful lot of data on what works and what doesn't. And the only thing, the, the one thing we learned here, when we were about.com, we tried to do everything. There are no tricks that work in the long term. It's be the best thing for that query. And on Google in particular, and it will work. Now, I think Facebook's less mature of an algorithm. They're not sure what they want to put in their news feed, and Pinterest is still figuring things out. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how people are playing with Amazon search engine to do this thing or that thing or find gaps in it and sell some products. Like, there's always going to be these little arbitrage opportunities, but just like market arbitrage, it's going to close over time. Well, give us a... You know, when you decide your strategy is to be the best, to have the best content, there's a lot of competition out there. There are a lot of places where you can go to get personal finance advice or medical advice. Uh, or yeah, how do you how do you make sure you have the best stuff? Sure. So let's uh, we can actually break it down. So the one asset we had here that's always been good is about.com's way of making content was always. We'll have experts create content on topics of which they are qualified and passionate. So, you know, all of our medical content is written by essentially by doctors or nurses or people with advanced degrees. So you, you take content that starts there, that's written by a person who's an expert. And the standard we use on the, the creator is if you read their bio and have to think about if they're an expert or not, they're not. So we just sort of eliminate that and you say, okay, they're going to be great. They're going to write content. And then we've built a lot of tools here to go out and find all of the other content that does well on the Internet in and around those topics. And we can study it and say, well, is ours – do we need more graphics? Do we need a video? Do we need like a chart? Do we need an, in, do we need an infographic? Do we need uh, more explanatory content? Is it not comprehensive enough? And you can really figure out um, – where you sit in the internet. And we've set out and, and tooled and, and resourced an organization to first and foremost, if we can't make the best thing on it, we don't want to do it. And no, we're not the best everywhere and the best is so subjective, but our goal is, is this better than everything else out there? Um, if it is, all of our other problems will solve for themselves. Now, going back to that good, fast, cheap matrix we talked about before, <laughs> this this is not cheap. We probably spend 2x or 3x on a piece of content what um, a, a, another publisher would spend. That's not always true. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's less. But we spend a substantial amount of money on, on new content, and we spend a substantial amount of money on um, fixing old content. Like, we have spent 45 or $50 million on content in the last three years, which in a very difficult publishing environment, I'm not sure who else has done anything like that. Um, and uh, so, so you, you, can, you can do it. We actually have, we have, we have sort of like codified and systemized how we want to make something that, that we think should be the best. Now, we're obviously not there yet because we don't rank number one for every single search that we try to. And there are lots and lots of good competitors that do a really, really awesome job. But we also think there's a lot of guys that have been around a long time that have fairly well-known brands that do a crappy job. 
and I, I think there's a ton of room for us. You do a lot of. Uh, you mentioned a lot of brand names. You do, you do product reviews. Um, do yeah. you engage in uh, affiliate marketing? Do you is that part of your business model? Do you get uh, uh, a cut if somebody? We do, go- we do a little. We do some affiliate things. Um, what, what we do is, and we sort of like, um, we stumbled into it a little bit. Um, now it's a fairly big business for us, and and what what we learned was we were not doing any commerce, but it turns out that. You know, LifeWire, which is our tech site, which is a you know tech help and reviews site, a little bit of a gadget site. Um, you know, we're I think we're like the fifth or sixth biggest tech site on the internet. Maybe I don't know. I forget. I ballpark it. Maybe seventh. Maybe fourth. I forget. Um, but what we learned was when someone comes in with the my router is too slow problem and they're reading how to speed up their router. One of the things that they really want to know is, well, what are the best routers I can buy for under 100 bucks for my house? So what we started to do was write very specific content for people that had specific needs in tech and that aligned very much with what we were already covering. And they started to do really well. So now we have like a whole team here that just does um, totally impartial product reviews uh, and recommendations. And when we tell people very upfront, it's at the top of the page. It's very similar to brands like Wirecutter or other brands you may have heard of. Um, we say, look, we, we get paid if you click on these links and buy it, but that's how we monetize all this hard work we did to review it and tell you about it. Wirecutter, uh, so, by the way, is is now owned by the New York Times, if I'm correct. Yes, they are. They are owned by the New York Times. <laughs> Interesting turn of events they there. They needed it. Yeah. And Wirecutter does, does a really nice job. They're, they're really, they do a really good job on uh, what they cover. Um, but, so, yeah, so this has turned into a business, and it's a pretty big business in our tech site. It's a pretty big business in our home site. You know, we'll review, like, blenders, and we'll review luggage in our travel site. You know, there's, there's, there's pockets where we do it. It will always be an add-on for us, and it's nice that we make money. And I'm, I'm going to say this. I, I don't really mean it, but I'll say it anyway. I, I don't care if we make money there. I like, hope Barry Diller's not listening. No, I mean, he, he, I sort of said it to him. He's like, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> but we don't we – don't, care in that the number one thing we want to do is write the best editorial review of, you know, best carry-on bag under 10 pounds or whatever. And if for some reason the top pick of ours, we don't have an affiliate relationship and we can't get paid because it's not anywhere that we do, it's still our number one pick. So I think that's what's sort of like underpins a lot of what we do and underpins why our commerce stuff's doing fairly well is we, we just... We've decided, we've decided we're always basically going to do the hard thing. We're going to try and make the best content. We're going to try and give people the best answers. We're going to give them the best reviews. And then we will figure out how to make money on the back of that. And it's been a fairly successful way of doing things. It, it also it has helped that um, you know, we're, we're very profitable now. But a couple of years ago, it, it very much helped to have sort of another revenue stream. Play, yeah, another revenue stream. But owners of us who were playing the long game when we weren't doing so well. So it was a little bit easier for us to have, like, this slight bit of arrogance about how we're going to build our business. It turns out it worked, but it's very hard to do it in a vacuum. I'm really – I want to go back to the affiliate marketing thing a little bit. I'm sure. always curious about it. I think it's um, – you know, for so long it had such a dark image uh, as, you know, kind of a dark art. And, you know, the typical example I heard of was of somebody who would set up a website to try to hijack uh, – 
you know, search traffic so that people would go to this kind of bogus website first before going on to the place where they actually made a purchase. And then, you know, that bogus website would claim uh, a uh, a fee for sending traffic to the place where they bought something. Uh, but, it you know, as time has gone on, while I think those kinds of things still exist, it's become more and more mainstream and more and more people are figuring out ways to use it. Were, were you concerned about that? Uh, we're that? the opposite. We viewed ourselves as like, look, the Internet, the, the dark arts on the Internet of doing like all of that, like scraping content, mirrors, like, like we're victims of that more than anything. It happens to us. It happens to everybody. The way that we do affiliate marketing and the way that like guys like Wirecutter do it and the way guys like whatever, you know, CNET would do it is we're the antidote to that. You come to us usually from search, sometimes from other sources. And we give you like a full-blown review of products. You pick what you want. You go to Amazon or Hewlett Packard Direct or wherever you're going, and you buy it or Best Buy or whatever for Jet or Walmart. And that is a very good transaction for everybody. Right? People did the research they wanted. They don't necessarily want the research from the retailers because they don't really trust that they're impartial. They want it from us. That is a very above-board daylight experience. I think the way it used to be done um, was not a lot of daylight. I, I think I think for us and commerce for us, commerce will never be the primary thing we do. It will always be a really nice add-on to other things that we're doing. For us, b- being able to have people trust us with product advice is uh, a benefit of making pretty good content on sites that are really nice and brands people recognize. And to the extent we can get paid for doing it, great. I think it's really good for retailers because it's again they're they're all struggling to get customers too, right? They're, there's only so search terms are really expensive on Google, which is the primary way of marketing commerce, and it's hard to advertise elsewhere. And we can deliver people to their doorstep for you know two to eight percent commissions. It's not bad. I think we have someone uh, on the line who wants to talk about SEO. Ken in Massachusetts, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. How are you? What's on your mind? So the the idea of um, what you guys mentioned about very difficult to manipulate um, search engine rankings nowadays. Um, I gotta disagree. I mean, long term, totally agree. You got you gotta be quality content. Short term, couple of months, six months. I mean, there's ways to certainly manipulate the highest competitive rankings with. Um, you know, just getting people doing organic searches for whatever keyword that you want to rank for. Um, you get enough people doing it, you can certainly pop up in the top five, at least above the fold, in many situations. What's the most important step toward doing that, Ken? How, how do you get people to pop up in the top five? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to do it. Um, when I speak at, at small meetups or conferences, I ask people, you know, directly, check out, you know, let's look at this search. They do a search, I show up nowhere. Um, Google this keyword, go down to page three, halfway down the page, click on my link. You know, a couple hundred people will do that. Wait 15, 20 minutes, we'll all do it again on incognito, you know, cellular, so everyone's not on Wi-Fi, and, you know, all of a sudden I rank number one for fairly competitive terms. It's doable, and there's lots of case studies out there with search manipulation and how to do it. Once you are number one, you can certainly give people quality content and, um, you know, a call to action, let them click deeper into the site, make it sticky. It's doable. And, you know, 
Well, Neil, I think Ken is basically agreeing with you in terms of a, a long-term strategy. Uh, it, does what he says about the short term um, make any difference to you? Maybe, but it doesn't make any difference to me. Um, I, I, we're not um, we're not trying to game an algorithm for a week or a month or six months. You can't. You're not building any real value doing that unless there's some plan to convert that. But uh, the gaps in these algorithms are so narrow and so closing. Are there like parlor tricks one can do? Probably. And I'm sure what Ken is saying is on. I'm sure you can do that. I just I I don't necessarily think you can build a business reliant upon that. It just doesn't work. And if you do things at scale like we do, you know, we, we um, you know, again, we've got 10 million user sessions a day, of which a fair number of them come from Google. There's just, these things are not doable at scale. I mean, they could be. And if, if you can somehow figure out how to do that on, on like how to get a mortgage or a really competitive term, that would be really interesting. But I, I, I think that's going to be pretty hard. Ken, do you agree it's not a way to, to really build a business? When you're a company like About.com and you've got thousands, tens of thousands of people working for you, sure, that's not scalable because you're in the you know, millions to tens of millions of, of pages. When you're a mom-and-pop shop in Boston and you want to get local people to your site. Well, yeah, if, you, well, if we're talking about local, that's very different. Lo- like local, if you're trying to get like your, your restaurant, on things, it's a different skill set you you use to do that for sure, 100% different than what we would do. But the even with local, which is like Google's number one focus, it's very hard to game. If these are all people from the local area clicking on like the local pizza place and sending the right signals to Google, I'm sure Google's going to change the rank of that local pizza place. I I actually agree with Ken. That's totally going to happen. I don't know very much about local. We don't really play in that space. Ken, thank sure, you so much for you. Go ahead, Ken. I was just going to say, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be in local, but local certainly works that way. Um, it, it, like I said, if you get enough people doing that search and clicking on those rankings, you can start building a large audience very quickly. Um, once you get that ranking, you can just, you know, flip it to quality content. I totally agree it's not scalable for big sites, but it's certainly doable. Ken, thank you for your phone call. Really appreciate it. Uh, interesting conversation. Um, Neil, I want to go back uh, to kind of wrap up to something you said earlier. When you, you talked about how precious time was when you were going through this uh, whole rebranding, rethinking process, and how uh, you know the, the mantra you came up with basically was, if what you're working on uh, doesn't excite you, if it's, if it's not working, don't do it, just stop. And I've never heard anybody approach an issue that way. I think that's really intriguing. But I'm curious, is that something you can maintain? Uh, I, can I can see that working during the heat of battle while you're under deadline trying to recreate a vision. Uh, are you still living by those words? I, we, we, I mean, again, we, tr- we, tr- we really try to. And obviously that's not going to happen every day, right? We're, we might be doing like custom content for an advertiser that is not really all that exciting, so maybe you're not that excited about what you're doing that very day, but at least you should try and make it as good as you can and as interesting as you can. And look, we're in a, we are in a business that is a 100% reliant on the reaction of consumers that have infinite choice. And if we, if we are not excited about what we are doing here, there is a 0.0% chance that someone who uses 
our properties is going to be excited. And that was the about.com problem. Nobody was excited about it here. And like we did, we, we still have problems. We'll still do stuff sometimes that like is absolutely mediocre. It's fine. But like, you're like, oh, it's not that good. It's like the, we just, it's like old about.com creeping back in here because, you know, you get big and you get busy. You just have to really, for us, the number one thing we have to do is make people happy with their experience here. So we can have no toleration on that one point. There's probably other points like, um, you know, every time we make something, does every line of code have to be completely, totally perfect? It, probably not. Well, we can get away with it. Let me but. ask you this real quickly. What's the challenge you're facing today that you're thinking about today that I'm going to have you back on to talk about uh, at some point down the road? What do you uh, need you to solve? Just, you just touched on it. How do we keep these values and, and this level of performance as we scale? And we're growing like we're growing at an uncomfortable rate for a bunch of people here who are very comfortable in, in growth environments. And it's how do we maintain discipline and focus around our core competencies as we scale? And it's super hard. So I look forward to having you back and continuing that conversation. Neil Vogel, thank you so much for joining us today. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.